May is Fibromyalgia Awareness Month. It's important to raise awareness about this chronic and often debilitating invisible illness known as fibromyalgia. This month-long campaign is an opportunity to educate people about the symptoms, causes, and treatments of fibromyalgia, as well as to show support for those living with these and other related invisible illnesses. Through increased awareness, we can work towards better understanding and management of fibromyalgia and ultimately improve the quality of life for those who are affected by it. And now on to this week's episode. During this week's episode, success literally goes to her head. Margaret Mitchell has her book published and is acclaimed as one of the best-selling books of her time, one of the best novels of her time, epic. I've read it, yet to see the movie at the time of recording, and it was an incredible historical fiction, more than exceeded my expectations, having just read it in preparation for this podcast. For those of you who are listening to the podcast for the first time, I am your host, Dr. Michael Lenz. I am author of the book, Conquering Your Fibromyalgia, Real Answers and Real Solutions for Real Pain, available in print and audio form. I have been a physician over 26 years. I am board certified in pediatrics and internal medicine as well as a diplomat of the Board of Lifestyle Medicine and Clinical Lipidology. I work to weave the best of both medical management with lifestyle medicine. Brief disclaimer, as with all podcasts and with the book, the information is provided for informational purposes only. While I am a doctor, I am not your doctor. It is not intended to be and should not be interpreted as medical advice for any medical condition and any individual. It also is not intended to be a substitute for medical advice. The content presented is provided as a starting point in your research and a helpful guide when discussing your individual circumstances with your trusted medical providers. All listeners are strongly urged to seek medical attention and guidance regarding any symptoms or health concerns. And on to this week's episode. Down the road, there were negotiations for the movie rights. These exhausted her. After signing the movie rights contract, however, she unwound and fell apart. She had spent the entire night talking when she went to Connecticut to stay with some friends. When she woke the next morning, she discovered herself blind as St. Paul on the road to Damascus when he saw Jesus and spoke to him, asking him why he was persecuting Christians. Once again, she fled home. Her physician prescribed absolute rest in a darkened room. The doctor told her that she would have to give her eyes a complete rest for 21 days. A month later, she summarized her ailment and her physician's prognosis. The two versions make a nice contrast. In distinction from her husband's assessment, Margaret described her condition in the darkest, most dramatic terms. In her version, the 21 days of rest swelled to three months or more. I have a period of inactivity before me, she groaned on September 1st. 
A week after, the doctor had allowed her to be up and about. She gave a detailed summary. I can see pretty well, but lights of any kind give me a headache. I can read headlines, but if I read more than three lines of small tape, words run together. A hand grenade explodes inside my skull, and I see Roman candles going off for hours. On such occasions, I retired to the bedroom, pulled down the shades, turned on the radio, and spent the day pulling feathers through the tickling of the pillows. The description that Margaret gives here is someone who's had a migraine that's gone into what we call status migranus. She reported, Roman candles going off. Those are fireworks. She describes this vividly and what is now understood medically as scintillating scotomas, which are at the onset of migraines. Typically, there will be lots of light and sound sensitivity, and laying in a dark room will be sought out. Overstimulation such as reading and stress can only make it worse. When we look at probably the causal factors that contributed to this, you can recall hearing that she was staying up all night talking to her friends. So something that was fun and exciting, but for Margaret and for people who have fibromyalgia and fibromyalgia-like problems that fall under the umbrella, which includes migraine headaches, anything that perturbs a healthy regular routine and schedule can just set things in motion. I have a strong aversion to encouraging sleepovers, even though I have two daughters who've done those over the years. I know that that is very unhealthy if one of their friends is prone to migraines because that will be potentially a miserable next couple of days. Sometimes the migraine may occur the next day, but more often it's a couple days as the body's adjusting. I kind of like to refer to it as a design component in our bodies that says, hey, don't do that again. You're going to be shut down now and I'm going to make you feel in pain and exhausted. I need to rest and I need to have my body restored. Another interesting characteristic in her story was that this occurred actually at the end of excitement. This wasn't a negative, stressful experience. She had her book published. All of her friends were talking. She was a celebrity. She was famous. And sometimes it's positive stress that can cause fibromyalgia flare-ups and migraines and IBS flare-ups. It isn't always bad things. It's stress. Anything that shifts the body emotionally, sometimes Emotions that are positive emotions can cause flare-ups, let alone negative emotions. But a lot of times the negative stress will get more of the attention. We think of abuse, whether that's verbal, emotional, physical, or sexual, or getting in a car accident like she had earlier to set things off. But sometimes it's the exciting, happy times in life that can contribute to a flare-up. Margaret was described as almost intrinsically unable to sit still. Mitchell flunked her recovery program virtually before it began. She had no time to rest. 
In the middle of her recovery, anxieties about the contract flared anew. The copyright clause issue provoked a whole new set of troubles. It is noteworthy that she almost continually was unable to sit still, which is typical in some ways of those with a hyperactive component of ADHD. As is more common in adults with ADHD, the hyperactive component becomes more internalized in the form of anxiety. By the end of the first year that the book was published, an estimated one million people had read the book. The novel had appealed to very basic human passions, impulses, and motives in her vast readership. She had dealt darkly with survival. She had appealed to the courage, energy, and dignity in the face of inevitability, defeat, and fate. The movie went on to win seven Academy Awards in 1940. There were phenomenal ticket sales as well. In 1992, it ranked 25th all-time for profits. It is estimated that it took in $800 million. In September 1939, Hitler invaded Poland, and the Soviet Union moved across Eastern Europe. France and Great Britain declared war. The world grew very sick. Margaret Mitchell had always deemed herself a nurse who could help others with basic needs. The international calamities gave her the whole earth as a field for these activities. Her sense of obligation rose with every disaster. The conflict affected every aspect of her life. At the same time, the war provides an appropriate metaphor for her own circumstances after 1939. Illness, death, and disruption at her own hearth, her own home, mirrored the international strife, and delayed the enjoyment of her fame and fortune. It was indeed a hawk and buzzard time, as she said. With the Battle of Britain, however, the author plunged into the middle of the American Allied war effort. She collected clothes and money for English relief. She made bandages and surgical dressings. In some version of Rosie the Riveter's labors, she also learned how to operate a factory-type machine with a six-inch rotary blade capable of cutting through 25 thicknesses of cotton. She, alone of the volunteers, generally seemed to relish the labor. She took exceptional pleasure in the lint-head patriotism, as they called it. She loved to keep busy, a much-preferred activity than sitting at a desk all day, which she had been doing for years in writing the book and all the time that she had been sitting around. That motivation to keep her moving was outside of herself. It was to help not only her country, but the free world to protect them. And she was doing her part. If you are struggling with fibromyalgia or know someone who's struggling with fibromyalgia, Staying regularly active in something that you enjoy will help you as you make your battle to reduce and lessen the symptoms of fibromyalgia. I had a recent patient of mine who went from a very stressful position to taking a leave of absence from that position and 
was doing work in her yard for months, doing spring gardening and was outside and relaxed and her symptoms markedly improved along with other healthy lifestyle choices without any use of medication. Unfortunately, we don't get paid to always keep busy doing landscaping. I had one patient say, boy, if I could make a living and make my salary by just doing woodworking and working outside, that's what I would do all of the time. For those of us who don't have a physically active job, maintaining a regular exercise program is so important as best you can as possible. I've had numerous patients share with me that they need to be regularly active for their mental health. Margaret Mitchell was also involved in other public patriotism. The ship called the Atlantan had slid down into the water. Margaret was there for the ceremony. She chatted with every sailor, asked about their homes, and made all the connections Southerners always make. Her participation in the launching gave her as much pride and pleasure as any human might aspire to. After the commissioning of the first Atlanta in September 1941, and the commissioning of the second in the closing days of 1944, Mitchell drove herself relentlessly. There are seven kinds of volunteer work I am fitted to do. Volunteers are as short as professionals now, so many people are on my neck to get me to work. Nothing would please me better than to do 17 things at once, for such a course of action would seem only natural to me. The pace and excitement took its toll. If new physical infirmities limited scope after 1943, she maintained a presence at least at all her prior activities up through the wars, including the bond sales, the bandage rolling, the clothes drives, and civilian defense. She even took on new commitments. While working double shifts of volunteer service in the wars last winter, she also volunteered to work on the Red Cross Prisoner of War Committee, devoted to assisting men held captive by the Japanese and Germans. It involved giving speeches and public relations, but it also involved something like social worker assistance to the captives' families. Like her mother, she assumed an immediate and personal responsibility for the welfare of those in uniform. Margaret Mitchell had a mother who worked really hard to help during the First World War I. She might see single men downtown or hitchhiking, and she would volunteer to give a lift. Nothing, however, absorbed more of her, this personal attention than writing letters to men in uniform. Her letters to soldiers, sailors, and Marines put her in a category of a one-woman letter writer USO. The wars also imposed still more arduous nursing duties much closer to home. Circumstances in her own domestic circle mirrored the dislocations of the war. Besides her own 
notorious ill health, which still took other and more calamitous turns in these years, she still played nurse to her ill father, a crew of sickly servants, and her husband. Her father proved the hardest of all. He suffered from chronic ill health, especially kidney problems. In the five-year period from 1925 to 1930, surgeons had operated on him three times. But his health worsened every year after the Great Depression. Around the time of publishing Gone with the Wind, his condition had worsened disastrously. His illnesses came in regular waves thereafter, and the physicians expected every new symptom to lead to his death. Against all odds, he survived for another eight difficult years. His only daughter seldom left his side. In the fall of 1938, he had his first apparently fatal seizure. The family mounted a death watch. He survived, but less than a year later, he was down again. The doctors had been insisting on a kidney resection for nearly a decade, and now, finally, the Mitchells agreed. It brought no sustained improvement. Despite two operations and many long months in bed with many nurses in attendance, her father still showed no improvement. She wrote on the fearsome eve of the Battle of Britain. The physical discomfort of such an illness, or obvious the mental ones, I believe, are worse, although not so apparent. It is hell for an active man who has had a busy life to lie in bed month after month, bored, depressed, and almost helpless. The family expected his death from hour to hour, but he outlasted pneumonia and other infections. Later, she related the horror of still another death watch, with all the strains and worry and sitting up all night in the hospital and jumping when the phone rings. The actual outbreak of the war multiplied the difficulties of her father's illnesses. It was difficult to find nurses and nursing assistants, because they had now vanished due to the war. Searching for nursing assistance consumed still more of her time. She gave much more time and energy to keep the best ones working. When one of the most reliable ones fell sick herself, she found herself tending to her. Besides the gentler care of bathing him and feeding him, she also heaved him about physically. This, in turn, exacerbated her own physical problems, especially her ailing back. In the best of circumstances, the illnesses of a dying father would have burned any family, but her father's character complicated his nursing. The old man's testiness kept pace with his physical deterioration. He was gruff in the best of circumstances. Illness made him impossible. He does not sleep more than an hour or two in the 24-hour period, and this makes him nervous. He has no idea as to how to occupy his time because he spent all his life working, and he does not know how to relax or play when he's not working. He is very easily depressed, and it takes the entire family's efforts to amuse and entertain him.
at age 78, now literally and finally at death's door in May 1944, he still demonstrated the general cantankerousness that had complicated his personal relationships since boyhood. Life goes on with all its fits and starts, his daughter said the month before his death. Eugene had mourned the loss of his wife 20 years earlier, but had found solace in Margaret. Margaret is so much like Maybelle, his wife, that it lightens the load. A father's blessing, but a daughter's cross to bear. When we talk about both Margaret Mitchell, we can't help but look at the impact caregiving had on Margaret's health. That heavy burden and stress and that cross to bear no doubt increased the pain and fatigue that she suffered. What's interesting is when we look at the genetics too of fibromyalgia and ADHD, it's typically a 50% inheritance. And it's likely, based on my best guess, that her father, Eugene, highly likely had ADHD. And he managed his ADHD by being very busy and very active. His career as a attorney likely also played well to that because he was able to interact with lots of different people and do problem solving and was likely able to delegate some of the less interesting work to administrative assistants. Now, physically and mentally not able to do his job, his ADHD was unmasked and showed up as an anxiety and irritability. I had a recent patient of mine who wanted to get treated for his ADHD again as he was successful and able to retire in his mid to late 50s. He came in because he had observed the struggles his father had when he retired and what he now understood his father having untreated ADHD and did not want to have a retirement like that with the significant struggles. Next week we will see the impact this had on Margaret's health as she starts to have significant declines and flare-ups with fibromyalgia and related problems. I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode. I'd appreciate it if you can hit the like or subscribe button. Also leave a review and share this with others. There are many people that have fibromyalgia and there are people you don't even know have fibromyalgia that are in your circle of friends and peer groups and sharing this can help them learn more about how they can live better with fibromyalgia. Until next week, go Team Fibro.